Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. This morning begins part four in our six-week excursion studying the doctrine of the scriptures and the authority of the Bible. Um, by way of reminder, in week one, we looked at the issue of what is language? What are words? Where does it come from? And the answer we received was God is the source of language. And the God that we worship, the God who is, is a talking God. He's a communicative God. He's a loving and relational God. And all this is true even apart from creation, just within the very Godhead itself. The Father loves the Son and shares with the Son. And there's communion and fellowship between the members of the Trinity. And then God gives us language. He speaks to us and he wants to be known. He wants to reveal himself to us. And his chosen instrument, his words. He sent his Son, the perfect revelation. But even for those um, of us who never got to see Jesus walking around, Jesus himself is mediated to us through words. He is the word within the word, so to speak. And then in week two, we asked the question, well, why the Bible? And why not some other holy book? And we looked at the testimony of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of Jesus, the testimony of the Bible itself and of fulfilled prophecy and archaeology. And then last week, we were well served as Jeb Brewer taking the Bible on his own terms. What does the Bible say about itself for inerrancy and for authority and for inspiration? And, and we saw just how lofty the claims of Scripture are, just how grand its statement of its own authority, its own accuracy, its own inerrancy is. This week, we'll be looking at an issue, the sufficiency of Scripture. The word sufficient simply means Enough. A competent amount, the sufficiency of Scripture. And, and this may not be a doctrine you've heard a lot about, but I, I guarantee you it's an important one. Whereas 30 years ago, the attack from the world, from Satan, was on the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, more than ever now, actually, the, the attack has shifted to something more subtle, more pernicious. The sufficiency. See, Satan wants to silence God's word, but there's many ways he can do that. And, and so the head-on assault that it isn't God's word is kind of the challenge to inerrancy. But if the church can become convinced that the Bible isn't enough, then we'll become more and more tempted to put it on the shelf and seek our wisdom and our truth someplace else. James Montgomery Boyce, in a sermon on this topic, introduced it this way. He said this, I would ask the question, do we really believe that God has given us what we need in this book? Or do we think we have to supplement the Bible with other man-made things? Do we need sociological techniques to do evangelism? Do we need psychology and psychiatry for Christian growth? Do we need extra-biblical signs and miracles for guidance? The reason I believe that this is important is that it's possible to believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice, and yet neglect it and effectively repudiate it just because we think that it is not great enough for today's tasks, and that other things need to be brought in to supplement God's revelation. And that is the danger. That is the danger. 
And so this morning, we will look at the issue of the sufficiency of Scripture on its own terms, whereas the previous messages have tended to sort of be topical, jumping from text to text. This morning, we will just primarily be looking at one text. Um, There's a number of texts we could go to for the sufficiency of Scripture, but I thought it would be more profitable to look at one in depth than five or six quickly. So having said that, let's read 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So as we look at this issue of the sufficiency of scripture, is the Bible really enough? We'll cover four points. First, in this passage, we see two distinct purposes of the scripture. As Paul is encouraging Timothy to go to the scriptures, He points out two uses. There may be more, but here Paul focuses on two. The first is the scripture is powerful to create the people of God. The scriptures are powerful to create the people of God. We see this in verse 15. Paul says, How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation. Now, this is no new point, and just about everybody who concedes the Bible is a book from God will grant this point. This isn't where we're going to spend our time, but I think it's worth highlighting. Again, the Word of God announcing the message of the gospel, announcing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is how we became Christians. According to James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Or 1 Peter 1.23, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. How did God create life in our hearts? How did God bring us to faith? It was through the proclamation of his word, the gospel message, the presentation of Jesus Christ in the word. The Holy Spirit applied to our hearts softened our hearts, opened our blind eyes, unstopped our deaf ears, removed our hearts of stone, and made us alive. And this is also important because as we move on, you you can't enter by any other means than through the gate. And the Bible has a lot of things to say, as we'll see, about marriage and family and church, but, but only for those who have first come to taste of the Lord's salvation, who have come to know Jesus Christ by faith. And so you can't stress this too much. That first and foremost, the scriptures show us Christ. They show us the gospel. And they give us life as the Holy Spirit implants them in our hearts. But like I said, we we know this. And so the bulk of our time this morning will be spent on the second point. The second thing that Paul tells Timothy, scripture is useful for. And that is to equip the people of God. So first, to create the people of God, and second, to equip the people of God. And we see that in verse 17. 
The scripture, or 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So notice that in verse 15, the scriptures are sufficient, able, powerful to make us wise to salvation. But then there's another function for the man of God, the person who is saved, the person who is united by faith with Jesus Christ, and that is to equip them for every good work. See, it's not as though once we become a Christian, we sort of put the Bible on the side. But rather, the Bible is God's means of presenting the gospel, presenting Christ, and then God's means of growing his church and equipping his church. And that's what we'll look at this morning. It's that second half of this verse. So after we look at the two distinct purposes, we see in verse 16 to 17 that the sufficiency of Scripture stated. Now, there's a number of passages that teach this, but this is probably one of the clearest. One of the greatest statements on the text of the Bible. And so we'll only cover a few points this morning, but have no fear. Probably this fall, we'll actually dive into 2 Timothy itself. And so we will be here again soon. I'm just going to look at four points in this passage of the sufficiency of Scripture. First, the extent. The extent. And what Paul says is that all Scripture is profitable. That blank there is all. So how much of the Bible is useful? All, right? All of the Bible. And that's important because sometimes we can just get cozy in our comfortable favorite little spots. I met somebody once who told me he just really paid attention to the red letters. I'm as if, you know, one member of the, Holy, of the Trinity was more authoritative than another. Or sometimes people want to pit Jesus against Paul. Or the Old Testament against the New Testament. You know, God was a big meanie in the Old Testament, but he's a sweetheart in the New Testament. There's all sorts of ways for us to deny that all the Bible is profitable. And if there's a part of Scripture that we struggle with, the problem is with us, not with the Bible. Which means those genealogies that begin the first ten chapters of First Chronicles are profitable. My difficulty with that is my difficulty, not the Scripture's difficulty. Amen? And so there will be some parts of the Bible that will be more self-evidently helpful and beautiful. But it's all profitable. All of it. So that's the extent. How much of the Scripture? All of the Scripture. And, and notice that superlative word, all. Not most of it or some of it. All of it. Okay? Using what method? How is the Scripture profitable? And here he gives us four steps. Now this is huge. For any of you who've done any of the Toughman classes or done through any of the pastoral counseling classes, this is a huge text because he tells us four uses of Scripture. And I think the order is very important. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And that order is important and again, I think the church has got a handle on the first two of that order, but it's the second two that oftentimes can be neglected. First off, the scripture shows us the standard. It shows us what truth is. It teaches us. So there are things I didn't know were true, and then I read the Bible and say, oh, wow. There were things that I didn't know was wrong, that I was doing in my life, and I read the Bible and I say, uh-oh. And it reveals who God is, and it reveals Christ, and it reveals God's standard. It teaches and secondly, in light of that teaching, there's a contrast between the, my life, the way I'm living, and Jesus Christ and who he would have me to be, and it convicts me. The scripture is useful sometimes in the ministry of the word. There's teaching. 
Other times in the ministry of the word, people are taught. And so we go and with scripture lovingly or to ourselves, challenge people to repent, challenge people to change. Here's what God says. Here's what you're doing. Won't you turn and trust him? The scriptures can be powerful for that function. But it's not just that. I think the church gets that. The scripture says do this and, you know, stop doing that. But the thing that's beautiful here is scripture isn't just useful for those two things, but for correcting. And this is the picture of the person who says, I know what I'm supposed to do, and I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I need help. I don't know how to change. I've been struggling with this for years. Yes, I know it's wrong. Yes, God's word beats me over the head every time I read it. And the scripture is not only powerful to show us what we should do, not only powerful to convict us and call us to repentance, but for those of us who want to change, it helps us to correct. This is the word used in Acts for the mending of nets. It's the scripture is used by God to mend our lives, to implement change. And then finally, for training in righteousness, this is sort of the long term, the long haul picture. And so there's a beautiful summary of the ministry of the word here. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That's how scripture is profitable as we use it in those four categories. And it takes wisdom and discernment knowing somebody to know which one of those is called for. You don't want to rebuke people who don't know what they're doing is wrong. You want to teach them. Sometimes people know perfectly well what they're doing is wrong. You can just jump to, that wasn't right. And sometimes you've got the the weak-hearted person who's discouraged and wants to change, and you want to come along and say, here, let me open up God's word and show you how you can grow, how you can be more like Jesus, how you can put off old behavior, put off the old man, put on the new man. And the scripture is profitable for all of that. Now, with what result? With what result? Fully equipped. And the ESV just says equipped, but both the New King James and the NIV say fully equipped, which I think is more the picture of the word. And this is where we get this notion of sufficiency from. When the word of God is used to teach and reprove and correct and train in righteousness, when all of it is brought to bear, then God's people become fully equipped. Not partially equipped, not somewhat equipped, not mostly equipped, but fully equipped. Thus, sufficient if you are fully equipped, you have what you need. If you are fully equipped, you lack nothing. If you are fully equipped for a task, you are prepared for a task. This is where the word sufficient hangs on, right here. So the scriptures leave God's people fully equipped for what? And this is finally the domain. Well, certainly not learning how to fly an airplane. So what are we fully equipped for? Well, the answer is every good work. Every good work. Do you notice the superlatives there? All of scripture leaves us fully equipped for every good work. There's no wiggle room here. It's no gappage. All of scripture is useful as it is taught, as it is used to reprove, as it is used to help people change and to maintain change. All of it is useful and profitable to make us competent, sufficient, equipped, for every good work. That is the doctrine and the sufficiency of Scripture in a nutshell. Now, for the rest of our time, we're going to unpack, well, what does this mean? How does this apply? But I hope you see it here clearly stated. There are other passages that we will look at. So let's apply, then, the sufficiency of Scripture. 
And as we look at this, the first challenge then is how are we to know what issues of life fall within the domain of the scripture's sufficiency? As I said earlier, the, the scripture is not a sufficient manual for learning how to fly a jet plane. It's not. It doesn't claim its sufficiency for that. So how are we to know then which areas of life the Bible says you've got everything you need here and what areas of life you might need some help? Well, the text tells us for every good work. And so the way to do this then when you evaluate something and say, hey, is this an area that the scripture claims it has what we need is to ask, is this issue relate to good deeds, to good works? Does it have a moral element to it? Um, 2 Peter chapter 1 talks about God giving us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That'd be another way of asking the question. Does this pertain to life and godliness or every good work? And so I've got a little test list here that I'll throw out, and I think you'll see how this works. So I'm going to list something. You tell me, does this pertain to good works or not? Does the scripture claim its sufficiency or not? So first, does the Bible, does Bible claim to be sufficient in telling you how to install a new carburetor? Does that fall under the auspices of every good work? Now, the person whose car it is might think it's a good work. And certainly, doing it in love, doing it without a grumbling spirit, have issues of ethics to them. But the issue of installing a carburetor, how you do it, in what order, what tools you use, is, is not a moral issue. And so, no, the Bible does not claim to be sufficient for that task. How's about anger at a coworker? Is that moral? And so the Bible then would claim, in this passage and others, to have what you need to deal with that problem. Okay, how's about this one? How soon, this, this is in the Kidder household, this is a very serious question. How soon should we start toilet training our children? <laughs> now believe me, daddy thinks this is moral. But, um, but, but in reality... Whether you decide, you know, as long as it's sometime before teen, I think you're good. Um, there is no magic right answer. It's not an issue of morality. It's an issue of wisdom. And, and parents by parents are going to make different decisions. Okay, here's one. Here's one. Hawkeyes or cyclones? Now, Greg Sweet thinks that's definitely a moral issue. Right, Greg? He's not even smiling. He's, he's yeah. Um... um How's about severe depression? Does the Bible talk about that? Does the Bible talk about sorrowing and rejoicing and hoping? Yes, it does. Yes, it, the Bible has a lot to say. Good grief, the Psalms just deal with that. We've seen it already. How God's people mourn. How they cry out for help in gloom and, and, and despondency. Our song this morning, God Moves, showing how confidence in God's sovereignty is a powerful tool in, in dealing with that. And then sometimes it gets a little bit more tricky. Anorexia and bulimia. Well, the Bible, I look through my concordance, I don't find that anywhere in the Bible. And so some issues become kind of a mix because the little bit that I've interacted with anorexia and bulimia, you're generally dealing with issues of control and sovereignty, issues of honoring your body, which is God's temple, issues of image and how you see yourself and how people see yourself, which the Bible calls the fear of man. So maybe not everything there, is, is ethical and moral, but certainly good portions of issues with anorexia and bulimia fall squarely within biblical categories and domain. And, and some of these things you've got to think through. 
Like, you know, what college should I go to? Or what job should I take? And again, there, there certainly is issues of morality here. Um, and there's plenty of issues of freedom. And so some issues in life are kind of a mixed bag. And you've got to grow in the skill of figuring out, okay, what parts of this are ethical? What parts of this are moral? Because the Bible claims that domain. And this is something we can ask other people for help with. If you're trying to think something through, is this issue that I'm dealing with, is this choice in my life, is this problem that I'm encountering ethical? Does God have a preference? Does this pertain to life and godliness? And if it does, then I want you to be confident. I want you to be glad. I want you to rejoice in knowing the Bible is enough. The Bible is enough. Secondly, how then should we respond? If this is true, and it is, how then should we respond? And I've got an illustration set up for you here. Um, well, there we go. See, Jeb Brewer set the bar high last week with the YouTube video. So, but I am up for the challenge. The gauntlet was thrown down. And so here's, here's my illustration to help you think through this. Because what we don't want to do is overreact one way or the other. And so listen to me carefully. I, the scriptures are sufficient, so to review, there is 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. The man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And of course, there's the key, competent, equipped for every good work. One other passage, 2 Peter 1, 3 to 4. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Where do we get that? Through the knowledge of him who called us. Where do we find the knowledge of God? It's, it's the Bible. So there, two clear texts that I think lay out the scripture's own claim for its sufficiency in the areas that pertain to life and godliness and to equip us for every good work. So here's my illustration. Imagine your home had these two separate sources of water. I want you to imagine that you had two and only two sources of water in your house, okay? The first is a hand pump. I don't know how many of you grew up and have seen one of these or had them in your home. Um, a hand pump. And that can be a lot of work. But I want you to imagine this hand pump, the piping went down deep, real deep, and it gave an unlimited supply of pure, fresh water, but it might require some work. Um, I remember in the summers, we'd go out um, with my family to our cabin, and we had a hand pump. You'd have to prime it, and you'd have to have someone pour the water while you're pumping, and sometimes your arm would get sore, and it could be a lot of work, but man, once it got going... Um, cold, pure water would come out. And that's sort of how the Bible is. The Bible can take some work. There are admittedly passages in Scripture that are not terribly clear upon first reading. There are some challenging passages. Peter says you know, of, of Paul that Paul writes things that are hard to understand. Anyone who's read Ezekiel knows what I'm talking about. And so we might need some work. We need to wrestle through the text. We might need to read a commentary, ask a friend, get someone to help pump the water with us. But we can be sure that whatever comes out is pure and it's good. And in the domain of morality and in the domain of life and godliness, it is sufficient. It will never run dry. Okay? Now, imagine in addition to this, you also had this. Uh, a, a turn knob faucet. However, due to some um, defect in the plumbing, 
it, it gave inconsistent waters. Oftentimes fresh, and sometimes polluted, sometimes poisonous. And I want you to get this. I'm not trying to say that everything the world comes up with is evil and wrong. But as we heard last week from Jeb, absolute truth cannot be established by less than absolute truth. And the truth that the world comes up with is not absolute truth. It, it's the result of our inquiry, of our minds, of our reasoning. And because we are human and finite, we can be wrong. In my own lifetime, butter's been good, butter's been bad, eggs have been good, eggs have been bad. And so we're still figuring stuff out. And, and so it's not to say that everything the world comes up with is wrong. There's plenty of useful things. We can make a plane fly in the sky. But whatever truth claims the world has are a step worth 20 below the truth claims of the Bible. And at the end of the day, the best we can hope with the wisdom of this world is perhaps it's true. It looks true, seems helpful, but we can't know for certain outside of God's word. We have no way, no sure way, of knowing real truth outside of scripture. And so the comparison then is something that might take a little bit of work, something that might take some, some teamwork even, but only gives pure and good results. It will never run dry. And something that might be a little easier, but it's a mixed bag. So I want you to think about this. If this was in your home, despite the work of the hand faucet, my question to each and every one of you is this, from which would you serve your family water to drink? Now, I think we all know the answer. We'd get up a little extra early. We'd call a friend, but we wouldn't risk serving our spouses and children water that might be poisonous. We wouldn't risk that, would we? And yet, in the analogy, I think a lot of times in domains that the scripture claims its sufficiency for, the Bible gets put on the shelf and the wisdom of the world is sought after and then sort of dressed up as Christian ease. And we'll look in our final point at some examples of that. But that's the analogy. Do we, if we really believe the scripture is sufficient, would we so quickly close it to run after other sources of wisdom for our problems? Um, I, I don't think we would. And so when we do, we've got to really ask ourselves, despite what we say about the Bible, in practice, do we believe it is enough? This brings us to a third point. Bewaring, beware of chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. Yes, that is the blank, snobbery. It's a term that C.S. Lewis coined in uh, Surprised by Joy, the account of his conversion. And he confesses how he was a great chronological snob. Chronological snobbery is the belief that whatever's newest is best. Whatever's old is useless. And so what one tends to think if one buys into chronological snobbery is, well, the Bible was, you know, written a long time ago, and back then people were simpler, and they didn't understand things the way we do. And so because of that, I, the Bible's helpful as far as it goes, but I need something that deals with, you know, 21st century problems. Listen to C.S. Lewis in his own words describe chronological snobbery. He was talking to his friend Barfield, who was trying to convert him, and he says, in the first place, this guy Barfield made short work of what I have now called chronological snobbery which is the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. You must find out why it went out of date. Was it ever refuted? And if so, by whom and where and how conclusively? Or did it merely die away as fashions do? 
If the latter, this tells us nothing about its truth or falsehood. From seeing this, one passes then to the realization that our own age is also a period. And certainly has, like all periods, its own characteristic illusions that will also go out of fashion. They are, like, they are the likeliest, these illusions, to lurk in those places that we assume so ingrained in our age that no one dares attack them or feels necessary to defend. Every age has its blind spots. And every age thinks that it has arrived. And there are things that we believe today that our kids 30 years from now, well, how did the culture think that? And so we've got to beware of chronological snobbery. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. Every temptation we face, common to man. Now, granted, there's never been people who have struggled with the internet before the internet, but the issues of the heart that play into that are common. Or Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. And so we may attempt to make a use of special pleading. Um, you don't understand. I know the Bible is good for most issues, but not this issue. But it's just a form of chronological snobbery, and it's just a denial that God has given us what we need, as though God, when he wrote this, didn't realize what the 21st century would be like. Um, it, it's too easy. This is how the Bible can get put on the shelf, and I hear this a lot from people. Well, the Bible's good for regular problems, for regular issues, but I've got real problems. It, I would laugh if I haven't heard it. And, and so we quickly reach for real help and real medicine and real tools while the Bible is sort of just viewed as, you know, love God, be nice to people, yay. And real problems, we've got to go someplace else. So that said, I want you to open your Bibles to Colossians 2 as we prepare to look at five modern challenges to the Scripture's sufficiency. But I want you to see this because we are warned of the danger of drifting to the wisdom of the world. We are warned in no uncertain terms. And again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying everything the world comes up with is wrong. That's not it at all. There's plenty that's been useful and good. It just lacks the certainty that God's word has. And we'd only be running after it as we do if we really didn't believe the Bible had answers. Which isn't to say you can never bring in the word, but you can tell so quickly when you're reading a book, listening to a message, whether it's first and foremost attempting to deal with the Bible, or whether it's first and foremost attempting to take what we've learned in culture and society and then sort of throw a Bible verse or two on it. It's easy to tell what you're dealing with. In Colossians 2, verses 1 to 4, I want you to know what a great struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is in Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why did Paul just say that? I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Then jump down to verse 8. See to it, which is another way of saying beware, look out, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
Now there's the warning. The Apostle Paul knows that there will be a tendency for us to look for our wisdom and our understanding in some place other than Jesus Christ. For the wisdom of this world to come along and say, we got that covered, we can do this better. And for us to close the Bible and go off this way. And it usually just boils down to pragmatics. Um, Oftentimes for Christians, we want the same thing. We want good marriages. We want godly children. We want people struggling with depression and fear and sorrow to feel better. And the world comes along and promises that its way gives better results. And, And then we're tempted to think it does, and then we go after it. So it usually boils down to just pragmatism, utilitarianism. So that said, let's look at five categories where I think, and this list could be 10 or 15, but five categories where I think currently the culture and in the church we're giving up ground over the sufficiency of Scripture. Okay? We'll have to move somewhat quickly here, but this is just, again, just hitting these points to think about. Is the Bible really enough in our day-to-day life? Or does it just have the gospel and basic things? First, counseling. Counseling, point A. And this, largely, at the beginning of the 20th century, the, the church more and more and more began outsourcing its pastoral counseling. Um, psychology was on the rise. And really, since the Puritans, nobody was writing on it from a Christian perspective. And the good news is, starting in the 60s, um, there's been a biblical counseling movement sort of pushing back that's growing, gaining traction. For any of you who've interacted with guys like Paul David Tripp or Ed Welch or some of these other men, this is an example of Christians thinking long and hard about the issues of counseling. But when you come to issues of counseling, and, and I know that some issues are organic and rooted in the body, but many are not. But when we're dealing with thoughts and fears and desires and loves, we're dealing with the soul. We're dealing with issues the Bible says moral issues relate to. And so we're dealing with an area the Bible says sufficient, enough. And then the challenge is, do we believe that? Or will we look elsewhere? Do we believe that? Romans 15, 14, um, Paul writes, For I am convinced to the Christians at Rome that you are filled with all goodness and wisdom and competent to counsel one another. And so that, that's one area where we tend to give up ground. And again, to be clear, I'm not saying that, you know, there are not issues that require medical doctors that aren't physiologically based. There certainly are. But I think in many instances, what you're really dealing with is thoughts and values and loves and fears and memories and longing and heartbreak. And, and all of these are biblical categories All these are spiritual issues. Secondly, marriage. Marriage. Sadly, among the professing church, the the divorce rate mirrors the culture. Because of that, I think there's a a challenge that, that perhaps the Bible isn't enough. If it was, why are so many Christians following the world? And yet clearly, the issue of marriage is an issue the Bible deals with in in the highest moral terms. In Ephesians chapter 5, husbands are called upon to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might wash her with the pure water of the word. Wives are called to submit to their husbands like Christ to the church. Oh, absolutely. Does God have expectations or requirements? Does he care about our marriages? Yes, he does. 
And because of that, we can take confidence that what God calls upon us to do, he has equipped us to do. That's the confidence we should take. But, but I'll tell you, what is so appealing to us is when somebody comes along and says, you know your problems? It's not really your fault. And the solution is not humility, repentance, faith, clinging to Christ and the cross. The solution is some tool, some trick, some dynamic that you're missing. And then everything will be better. And there are so many books that dress up in Christian clothes promising just that. So, so just as a word of caution, any, any person who's talking to you, any book you're reading that presents a solution to life's problem and it's not Jesus, the cross, grace, faith, repentance, and humility, they're selling you um, Jack's beans. They are. There's no good thing. I just hear this. There's no good thing that comes to us that does not come as a grace from the Father bought on the cross through our receiving it by faith and humility. There is no good thing. And, and anyone who, who tells you differently is wrong. And yet, so often we want to hear that because humbling myself and repenting, that's not easy. I'd so much rather hear there's just this tool, there's this trick, there's this technique that I'm missing out on. And that's why my marriage is suffering. No, God wants to kill Jeremy Kidder and resurrect him. He wants to make him new. That, that's how my marriage is going to get better, through dying daily to self. It's just not easy. It's not fun. But the scriptures are sufficient for marriage. How about parenting? How's about parenting? Again, so many approaches, so many books. And again, the Bible repeatedly speaks to the issue of children. God cares about children. Um, for those of you who were at the Iwana dinner, Jeff Zimmerman talked about Jesus putting children on his knee and saying, don't forbid them to come and, and instructed them in Ephesians that they're to honor their parents. The Bible speaking to parents in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go and even when he is old. He will not depart from it. Conversely, what if you don't train up your child? The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29, 15. So absolutely, God wants parents parenting. And he warns of the dangers when parents don't parent, when kids raise themselves. And again, what God requires of us, he has given us to do. He has given us what we need. And yet, I, I run into sometimes what I call parenting agnostics. An agnostic is someone who doesn't know what's true about something. And a parenting agnostic works something like this. You'll talk to them. They'll be sharing with your kids. And you'll start to try to give them some encouragement. You'll start to ask them some questions about biblical principles applying. And all of a sudden, up, up goes the blinders saying, well, you know, every kid's different. And there's no perfect way. And you know, we sort of have to figure this out. And, and it becomes clear this person doesn't think there are answers in the Bible. They're parenting agnostic. And, and the scriptures replete with wisdom. For those of you who went through Paul Tripp's um, class on getting to the heart of parenting, I mean, good grief, this man has just mined some of the principles of scripture, and there's so much more, and God has given us a wealth of information on how he wants us to rear our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And yet again, it's so easy to go to other answers. Okay, how about point D, church life church life, or we could say church growth. 
And what I mean by this is just the ordering of the church, how we organize ourselves, how we work together, how we build ourselves up. Um, the last 30 years have just brought in a slew of Christian books on basically taking business principles, marketing principles, and applying them to the church so your church can be purposeful as well. And, and one has to wonder, did God really give us enough in the Bible to know how to run a church, or do we really need to lean so heavily upon marketing techniques. And again, it's not that marketing techniques are evil. My concern is when people so quickly close the Bible to go to this thing that appears to work. It's certainly working for the church down the street. That's my concern. It's not that we can't learn anything from business. We can't learn anything from marketing. But in our hearts, like the Israelites who went after other gods, here's this technique. Here's this tool and it's working. And we just sort of close the Bible and go after that in our hearts, not trusting that what we need is here. What we need is here. So does God have a preference for how the church is ordered? You bet he does. We've already seen in 1 Timothy 3 that the very reason Paul wrote the letter was in case he delays that Timothy might know how he ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul's writing so Timothy knows how to order the church in case he's delayed. We'll see in Titus, same thing. And in Ephesians, again, this time in chapter 4, we get one of, one of my favorite passages about the church. Ephesians 4, speaking of Christ ascending and in ascending, giving out gifts, giving out gifted men. Verse 11, he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Has God given us some instruction on how to be a church? He absolutely has. And he's given us what we need. And it's not to say we can't learn things. And it's not to say there aren't useful tools. But is the majority of our understanding of how to be a church found in the Bible or someplace else? That's the challenge in many churches. Thankfully, I do not believe here, but in many churches, more and more, an understanding of the church is what works and what marketing trends show and what sociology trends show and not what Scripture says. Not what Scripture says. And finally, point D, evangelism. And, and again, we could add to this list, but I'm just picking five. Evangelism. It's become more and more passe, more and more... Um, difficult for our culture, this notion of proselytizing and trying to convert people. And so, not surprisingly, there's all sorts of new techniques for evangelism that don't involve any of that. And yet, when we look at the Great Commission, we hear this. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw him and when they saw him and worshipped him, but some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So does God care? Is this an issue of life and godliness in every good work? You bet. So has God given us what we need to know how to share our faith, to know how to reach the world? Again, you bet. And so, in recap, I just want to challenge each— well, I want to encourage first, then challenge. You teach, then you rebuke. I should physician heal thyself. And I want to first encourage you that there is nothing that God has called you to do. There is no command of Scripture for which the Scripture itself does not equip you to do. Just hear that again. There is nothing that God calls you to do, not a single thing, that his word does not equip you to do. And so if your conscience is convicted to do something, if you feel God's displeased with something, be confident, be certain. His word is sufficient. His word is sufficient. And then secondly, I want to challenge you, to, all of us, myself included, to think through our lives and are there areas of our life where we may tip our hat to the sufficiency of Scripture, but we're drinking from the other faucet. We're drinking from the wisdom of the world. Are we, as we approach issues of counseling, are we running to pop psychology and, and abandoning Scripture so quickly? Are we looking for our marriage help elsewhere? Parenting techniques from Dr. Phil or Oprah? Are we organizing our church around the latest marketing trends, business techniques? And is our evangelism catered to the spirit of the age that doesn't offend anyone? Or are we building all of these things and all of our life upon the foundation of God's word. I want, to, I want to close with one passage that is very familiar to all of you. But I want you to listen carefully to it. Sometimes familiarity can breed contempt. So I want you to listen closely to Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So let that sink in. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Do you hear that? Do you hear? You're never going to regret going to the Bible. You're never going to say, if only I hadn't done what the Bible said. It's never going to happen. And he makes a promise here that when we don't lean on our understanding, when we go to his word, he will straighten our paths. He takes the responsibility for the outcome if we'll only go to his word and trust that the water isn't going to run dry. It won't. For 2,000 years, God's people have come to his word and drank and fed and been transformed. He will not begin to fail his promises now. So I just want to encourage you. The Lord has not left us orphans. He's given us his spirit. And he's given us his word. And he's given us everything we need for the tasks that he has called us to do. All that remains then is for us to be people of the word. So last week we saw how authoritative, how deep, and how high does scripture go. And this week, how broad. Every area of life that deals with morality. Every area of life that deals with life and godliness. God's word is sufficient. It's life-giving. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just thank you for the gift of your word. We praise you for all that you've given us. You've just lavished your grace upon us. 
And Lord, we live in a day where because of the printing press, most of us have multiple Bibles. We recognize that for thousands of years, your people had community copies. And yet in many cases, as I read the New Testament, those people knew their Bibles better than I do. And so Lord, help us not to um, presume upon your grace. Help us to be a people of the word. Help us like newborn babes eagerly hunger and desire for the pure spiritual word like milk that in it we might grow in our salvation, Lord. Help us to be a people of the word who live, eat, breathe, speak, sing your word. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Make us more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.